Let's talk about the first half of life and the second half of life. Yeah. That's something that comes up frequently. And I've had a kind of a nagging feeling that, that it's just referenced mm -hmm. in the conversation and that there might be people listening that are like, okay, when they're saying first half of and second half of life or whatever is synonymous with yeah. that. What is that? What actually is that? Um, and we're, and we're making a podcast that, what, what would you say, is looking over the shoulder of our own transition. Yeah. First to second half life, if that's a thing. And, and, and I also started to feel like, I was like, the, the most interesting thing is two people that don't really know where they're going. And there's an exploration that's happening in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a window into what is growing, kind of like a what is growing, watching it grow and morph from week over week, which is very different uh, in contrast to like feeling like you you're on the other side of something and now you're reflecting back and giving yeah. all of the information in this like wonderfully sort of distilled package. I feel like um, when they say, you know, two people get together, they have a conversation and a third thing grows from it. If it's a genuine conversation, you'll find a transformation that's kind of like that happens in both people. And there, and there's something new that's coming and emerging. The first time you and I got together, um, first of all, if I can take you all the way back there, you... <laughs> Wayne's World. Wayne's World reference. Um, you mentioned, first of all, Richard Rohr's Falling Upward. Yeah. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> it's hysterical to me now. <laughs> yeah. um, and you said a few things that, like you said, I feel like I've been walking through my life with my fingers crossed mm -hmm. behind my back. Um, that and came up in the first podcast. In the, fir the first time we ever sat down. When like, I had a with, cold. With our we bottle drinking. of bourbon yeah. and the mm -hmm. hummus and everything. And... Um, and, and that, I mean, that, yeah, that was, and then there was also, uh, I, by the way, my guess is that I had never even thought of that as a metaphor. Yeah. It's not like I, I had been thinking that and I was revealing it. It probably just came up and yeah. that has become important. That was, that became really an important image for me. That's so funny that it was in that podcast. Yeah. Well, there's multiple things Which we never released. I know, which we never will. Uh, and it didn't seem like you were aware of where things were going, no. nor obviously was I. But That's the funny thing about the conversation because, yeah, that, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. I mean, we were, we were the something, we were, we, were, we were engaging in something natural, conversation, and the content and themes and the third thing, as you were saying, that began to emerge, actually, you know, looking back was like a thread or yeah. something like that. So, the first, the yeah. first, the yeah. first half and the second half of life is something that is constantly referenced in this conversation because it probably is like the the ground on which the conversation walks. All right, yeah. So let's talk about. First of all, I didn't like it the first time I heard it because no. it it feels unfair. Like if like who are you to say what you know half of life I'm in or like is there some sort of magical line like the river sticks that you you cross at some point mm -hmm. um which is the problem with all conversations about territories um levels of consciousness uh stages of faith because it implies some kind of hierarchy and postmodern people like me hate hierarchy we 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 despise we think everything should be leveled out and flattened and 
Um, but are you describing also the, uh, the, a sort of sense that, well, if someone's in the second half, then they're more advanced. Exactly. And they're looking at me like I'm just this kind of like inferior. Look at you and your first half of life consciousness, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but another word for it is just growing up. And, and I think most people would admit the, uh, your consciousness as an early, uh, in early childhood or early adolescence and that of an elder are very different. So mm -hmm. there's some admission of, all right, yeah, there's a thing called growing up. And Jung is the one who came up with first half of life, second half of life. And, and, and when we say Jung, we're talking about Carl Jung for anyone that's not catching that reference. But yeah, um, yeah. thanks. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe, maybe one thing that's, okay, let's try to, because I'd be curious to see what you would say about this, but let's try to, to put some words around the first half of life. Or maybe share a story about when you started to recognize that there is a transition or, or the story of what it looked like for you. Well, okay, well, all right. So, uh, but I'll start with the first half of life. Yeah, definitely. So, um, my understanding, and, and uh, maybe we should have said this at the beginning, these are metaphors. Like, <laughs> the first half and the second half, right? It's a metaphor, and it does. The first it, half of life is a metaphor. The second half of life is a metaphor. It's a freaking metaphor. And the transition is not a, a chronological. At this midpoint, you start really. And I heard it described like this. And for me, this is true. And I and I'll totally share my my own experience. Um, it's a psychological transition that happens from going from the first half to the second half, and the psychological transition is often accompanied with an awakening to your own mortality. Um, it's an experience of things falling apart. Um, even, you know, d in spite of all of your skills and tools of being able to hold them together. And it uh, is accompanied with questions that sound a lot like, why am I here? Who am I really apart from the roles that I've been playing? Like something that I've said, uh, you know, multiple times, like yeah, to different therapists, it's like, I want to take a vacation from who I've been telling the world that I am. Yeah, um, that's a great great line and uh i think that there's uh those are the kind it's almost like those are the things that start happening psychologically mm -hmm. but that can be happening that could be happening as early as your you know 20s yeah as late as your 70s yeah, yeah. i mean it's not it's not a timeline yeah well adolescence i think is is a new phenomenon that's what social scientists really and probably anthropologists are saying there wasn't adolescence Mm -hmm. So all of the rites of passage that were that you and I have read about and sort of are attracted, at least I'm attracted to, and, and what was going on with young people and in indigenous and ancient cultures, well, some of that is that they had no choice. Right. When you were 19 years old, you had to be a full functioning, healthy adult who's making babies. Right. Um, so becoming a man and becoming a woman required serious ordeals mm -hmm. to help help people grow up otherwise and plus then you, you know if you only live till 40 you yeah. know you've you have to go up pretty quickly but well now, and, and i think what you're referring to is like you have to imagine all of it in eighth grade um we take our children out into the woods tell them to come back in four days after fasting uh and you know staking themselves to the ground and having a vision and um and even in some situations like i've heard of the, some tribes like literally the men like dressing up as like ghosts and monsters and taking the boys away and the theater of it is the boys have to cling to mom and mom has to act like it's the end of the world mm. and still the boys are taken away so that when they come back they realize like 
I've survived and I'm now something separate than the person who needs to cling yeah, to my mother. Right. And it's very similar for women too. Those were all like very deliberate rituals to, to accelerate as fast as possible the transition from being a child to being, you know. Yeah. I mean, part of my own uh, first half of life story, and I'm not necessarily claiming I'm in the second half, um, we're hovering around this metaphor. Something has been uh, uh, shifting in my life. But I think it was, I mean, here, here are elements of the first half of life. Acquiring a socially acceptable role to myself and in the eyes of other people. So who is Kent? Well, he is, well, what it took for me eventually was, for a while, what worked was, um, Kent works for a church. He's the music guy at a church, you know. That's a role that made sense to me and to other people. And, and I had to acquire the skills to pull that off, mm -hmm. you know, pull that off well enough. And with enough self-esteem, this is where you're starting to get to a more healthy first half of life, where you have enough self-esteem and self-confidence, which many people are really still struggling with, to say, yeah, this is what I do. I'm capable of doing this. Mm -hmm. And and then it was uh, a teacher, you know, like uh, I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to teach and I thought I wanted to teach Bible or religion or something like that. So you, I went to graduate school. I got a degree, I, which proves to yourself, i.e. the developing ego, that I'm capable of doing this. I'm able mm -hmm. to do this. I got a degree. It, it hangs up. Well, it doesn't hang on the wall, but um, it's in a box somewhere. Mm -hmm. And it, it, my name is on there. And, and I'm entering a social contract with an, uh, an institution that's paying me to teach. You know, Therefore, I'm a teacher. I know who I am. Mm -hmm. They know who I am. Um, my students know who I am. They relate to me in that way. Those are all social roles. And that's, that, that's at least in my view, how you, how you um, start to explore the full territory of the first half of life. Yeah. And, and some of that, maybe you could think about it as like moltings. Like if you take the, yeah. the image of, a, of a caterpillar to a butterfly before the chrysalis and the cocoon, you have a series of moltings. And some of them can be quite dramatic, like the thing grows, you know, to four times its size. And moltings are like really shedding skin like a snake, you know, mm -hmm. like, and it seems like it's a new creature. And in a way it is, but it's still very much a caterpillar. That was what it was like for me. So I thought, well, maybe it's not being a teacher. Maybe it's a megachurch pastor, you know, and then so I'm going to shed that skin of high school teacher and, yeah. and maybe for some people it's theology and mine was like this a little bit too my theology is too conservative so if i just had a more liberal theology you know or if i well, if i shed this tenet and if i if i if i no longer believed a but now believed b yeah that that's a serious i I'm, I'm not minimizing that that's like world no. view shifting but it's still not quite the same can i can i also jump in on some things because i think that it's um like the territory that you're in is really intriguing. And I was just describing it the other day that I started my twenties with the belief that I really didn't have any business being an adult. And if I could just get paid by somebody to do something that I like, um, that would be like a huge win for me. <laughs> And, and when I think about, I mean, 
yeah, if someone if someone had come to me and said like, "Hey, all right, let's talk about the second half of life journey." When I was 22, I was just like, "There's no I I'm I'm I I'm not even deserving of uh, you know, like a uh a, a job here. I need to just f- see if I can figure out a way to make a little bit of money doing something that I enjoy." Mhm. And like what it, what it, like the you must have a, those tests of like what am I capable of? Yeah, and, and it's kind of amazing great. when the world begins to affirm or confirm that it's almost like you're wondering wondering like physically wandering mm-hmm. through things like a career and through things like a marriage and through things like um starting a family there's a lot of actual wandering in the real world that happens where you have to explore and discover things and mm-hmm. you know and and s- slam into things you're like that was not that's right (laughs) i did i was not good at that but i was actually way better at this and all that happens sort of out there Mm -hmm. and and the ego clings to it it says now i know who i am i'm a musician and by the way richard Rohr says that lovely line he says success has nothing to teach you after the age of 30 now that's a first half of life second half of life comment Hmm. but he's saying what the subtext is success does have something to teach you before 30 yeah and that's actually one of the problems with very successful people. Let's say I was really good at the music yeah. and that turned into, you know, an even bigger church, which turned into a record deal, which turned into a, a recording empire, which turned into, you know, me living in a mansion in the keys or something. Yeah. And then all my identity is wrapped up then in I am the guy who knows how to make the most awesome music in the country that everybody's using. Yeah. And when will I grow up out of that? Well, if I'm super successful, that actually becomes a major limiter. So the big things that tend to happen to people like that is suddenly the whole industry turns on them. They get, it's like, um, Oh, what's uh, MC hammer. You know, it's like MC hammer. (laughs) Like he's living, he's living in a sick pad in California. And then all of a sudden he's in foreclosure. Yeah. His pants, everybody mocks. And he can't find a job and he can't pay his bills and he's in massive amounts of debt. Yeah. And that's the opportunity. That there's well, and, the opportunity. And and, and in, in some ways, a lot of people would say he was the lucky one, if you're gonna talk about it more on like the level of the soul. Exactly. Like it was it was wonderful that it fell apart. Because it's for think... for many that it does not fall apart, you see this is sort of the tension, is you see the the what doesn't fall apart, and it looks like that's what success looks like, is to have still sort of like a an 18 year old's perception on what's awesome about life which is like clothes cars parties amazing house um you know and and yet now this person's 50 55 60 they've never actually experienced real um hardship and and that's kind of held up as like well that's the ideal would be to avoid suffering avoid discomfort that's right. um and be worshiped worshiped by child. those yes. but it's it's uh what does james Hollis calls it? he calls it infantilizing infantilizing yeah being a perpetual child while all your needs are met and you're happy and you're either shielded from suffering um or there is no suffering you know yeah. or we call that denial but um well cuz what you're describing is a cycle of death and rebirth and somehow the narrative got shifted to um there is no death. If you're experiencing death, uh, AKA, if you're experiencing discomfort, if you're experiencing unraveling, if you're experiencing suffering, something 
that's the signal that something has gone terribly wrong. Yeah. And the world is conspiring against you, and you yeah. got to get out of that as quickly as possible. Well, and that's why I love Buddhism. But the, but the soul, but the soul seems to love death, right? It's it it, it wants to it, has it wants no to problem say, with death. It wants to say you are there is still something that is genuinely you that exists apart from all of this other stuff. And in fact, if I could just show you how you are none of those roles mm -hmm. that's that exactly you've been right. playing, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I was thinking about Buddhism as you were you were speaking just now because the first tenet, the first truth is that life is suffering, which is such a funny and obvious and powerful thing, but they're saying to get even going on yeah. the journey, the specifically the spiritual path of Buddhism, you have to accept premise number 1. Life is suffering. The funny thing about Christianity is that I think because of our misreading of the fall and sort of this like the, and I, I really believe it's a misreading that everything was perfect and Adam and Eve messed it up and now we're in this so-called right. fall state right. gives you the, um, the, the psychological, um, a way of reading, a, a way of reading re reality that's psychologically damaging, which is this mm -hmm. life shouldn't be this way. Well, we think ooh. life, why, why, how could Adam and Eve have messed all this up? Everything, life should be perfect. There should be no suffering. There should be no yeah. pain. There should be no tears. I said, that's not life. So I think, um, who's this dude? Uh, it looks like he's dropping off a present for um, Fletcher. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, hey, hi. Now we just made eye contact. Thanks. <laughs> Wait, he might be coming to the door. Is it? Okay, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Is a, no, no, it's all right. This is a gift. This is a drop-off for the So grumpy. Um, okay. All right. So we we completely expected comfort to lead to meaning, and in yeah. fact, it's probably the exact opposite. Exactly. And 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 that's again to say I don't think you can skip that. I mean, that's just part of, for some reason, part of how one develops a, an ego, a, an ego persona in the world. A, you know, it's part of adolescence. Who knows? Um, but that. But yeah, that so it's like you suddenly have like life feels more hollow. Like I remember when I was living in Israel, and um, I, my friend Phil, um, passed away sudden suddenly of a heart attack, and he had five kids, I think, and it was horrifying. I remember going over to to, to their house the 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 same day, and yeah. you know coming in, he's got these little kids and. One of his sons is like, my dad died in there, like in the bathroom. He was pointing at the bathroom, you know. It's mm. just like horrifying. Um, and those moments, it's like time stops. That's the way it felt. 
like the intensity, it, it sucks you into the present, being mm -hmm. in the face of grief and a, a kind of suffering that cannot be alleviated. It can only be just stood in, mm -hmm. sucks you into the present, but also strangely, it, it, it gives you a taste that life is painful and life has meaning. Yeah. And I think even well, that and, and the meaning becomes, I, I love how you talked about being sucked into the present because I think that's what starts to become clear. Like all of the meaning that I'm going to find is going to be found right now in this moment. It's not coming later, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's a totally different waking up in the morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, and speaking of wake up in the morning, when you wake up the next morning, and you're like, oh, Phil is still dead. His kids are still going to suffer this loss. His wife is alone right now. They live in Jerusalem, which is a very hard place to live. What's going to happen? It's like all of them, the existential questions of like, what is meaning? Yeah. <laughs> Who am I? What am I doing here? Right. What are any of us doing? Get turned up. Yeah. And I think part of the transition in the second half of life is you start deciding some, sometimes consciously and probably mostly unconsciously, I'm going to follow that trail. And yeah. so many people have never wandered. I mean, yeah. really wandered. I don't necessarily mean they, you know, go to Southern California, uh, although that might, <laughs> it's a great way of doing it. Um, you don't have to move anywhere in particular, but you do have to really wander. Not be like, hey, I listened to a podcast last week and it gave me some questions about God. And I thought, am I an atheist? But now I went back to church. I'm talking about the kind of deeper wandering that says, I don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know who to trust. I don't know if I trust myself. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to read my own experiences. The stories that I've been telling m myself about my own wounds don't seem to be lining up in quite the same way. I, my, my narratives are falling apart. Uh, my victim story or whatever is not working on yeah. um, these. This is the kind of wandering that begins to happen. And, and the wandering and that gets me excited. I think, yes, I think the wandering there is there. The wandering is a search for meaning. The wandering also recognizes that meaning is not going to be found in comfort. So it, first of all, the wandering is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It gets very uncomfortable. And then not only does it become uncomfortable for the person who's doing the wandering, but all of the people in life who their understanding of you is that you were the one who wasn't doing the wandering. The discomfort you. gets dialed up for everybody else. And it starts to get, I mean, when you imagine like uh, uh, we talk about the disintegration of an ego, probably just a really simple way of categorizing it is like, um, you are stop you've stopped playing the role that you found most comfortable and you stopped playing the role that other people's comfort was built upon exactly and so the people around you start saying you're crazy you start wondering if this... you're crazy and it seems like you're doing everything <laughs> wrong awesome. that would be probably a a good a good marker and maybe a great way to end this conversation i'm like that would be sort of that in-between space between the first and second half of life which is what we talk about yeah. when we sit down to talk this is i mean this is why i so resonated with mary oliver i mean this is in my book but i really did i'm not exaggerating when i say i wrote her poem the journey on my whiteboard in my office at Mars Hill, well, it wasn't a whiteboard, it was a glass board, which I hated. They had fine whiteboards and they replaced them with glass boards because they were cooler, but they gave this like double effect, like it always oh, messed up my eyes. So anyway, I wrote, 
One day, you finally knew what you had to do and you began. And the next line is, the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And that's what you're talking about. Everybody <laughs> says, you're not the person I signed up to be with. You should not behave like this. You're going to screw up your life and you're going to screw up my life and everyone else's life. Mm -hmm. And those are those loyal soldiers. I mean, you can have your own inner loyal soldier, but, the, but you can also have it as a kind of metaphor for the people around you saying, go back to who you were, are supposed to be because you're going to fuck your life up and you're going to fuck everyone else's life up. Mm -hmm. And that's where like, it's not just one fork in the road. I wish it was that simple. I wish I could tell people, oh, simple. You just get on the path of authenticity and wandering and away you go. Yeah. No, it's like every single day you wake up and say, all right, one day I finally knew what I had to do and I began. Mm -hmm. not, not I finished, just I have to start again and it's going to take tremendous courage and the people around me are going to shout their bad advice. Another line of that poem is, their melancholy is terrible. They will tell you that you're depressed, but their melancholy is what's terrible because they can't look at it. And so mm -hmm. it's like this monster that comes up. It's probably why those people dressed up like monsters and stole the kids because <laughs> the melancholy of the community and sometimes of your own psyche comes up and says, don't do this. Don't do this. You're going to be just, and it's like demons coming out of the woodwork. And mm -hmm. I don't know, their melancholy is terrible, but, you, but what she says in the poem is, but you kept going. You kept going. Even though you didn't know where you were going, you kept going. You woke up again and you began. You said, no. Because uh, what, what, what's the consequence of not going down the path? I think that's probably worth saying at this point. The consequence is that you will never, never discover glimmers of soul. The irony is the consequence is death. It's just a No, you're going to die anyway. Yeah, How no, are but, you going to die? Exactly. Are you going to die with all of your illusions wrapped up around you like a flag, like the American flag, and say, mm -hmm. I did it, you know? Um, I had a condo in on you know in in Southern Florida, you know, yeah. and just say, see, I proved to myself and everybody else that I matter. No, the soul doesn't give a shit about any of that stuff. So what's at stake is the is what Jung would call the soul, the the deep self, the true self that wants to be born in the world, and for some strange reason has to go through this kind of uh, war with the ego persona. But what's at stake is that you'll, that will never be lived out. That, mm -hmm. and, and to get there, some part of your life has to fall apart. Some part of your life has to fall apart so that you do the deep dive. And meanwhile, at least in my opinion, the soul, whatever we mean by that, is constantly offering its assistance. It's not mm -hmm. like, it's not like um, you're totally lost. It's constantly saying, putting little thorns in your flesh, saying, eh, this is something you ought to pay attention to. Or a dream comes up or or. Uh, something in nature grabs your attention or some numinous encounter or something mm -hmm. mysterious that you can't explain. It's constantly saying, I'm here to help. I want this thing to, to grow forth in the world. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's like so easily you know, can be shut down. It's kind of like, um, I really, li I really like uh, something. I think this is actually in falling upward uh, where Richard Rohr says, you know, each day he looks for a humiliation, mm -hmm. which is kind of a way of saying like, it, it's really great for each day for something to get beat, something to die, you know, to have a little, oh to God, experience yes. a little death each day. And I think that what you're describing is like, um, we, it, we need, let's call it the soul. The soul is looking for like a constant cycle of death and rebirth, mm -hmm. you know, which is very much something you see in nature is constant death and rebirth um, as a way of living 
life. Whereas the 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 metaphor of the zombie um, that you know George Romero introduced so lovely. And if you've ever seen Night of the Living Dead, it is an art movie with some bad actors, mm -hmm. which make people think that it's campy. It is a, an incredible film. Um, but the metaphor of the zombie is the person who never fully dies and never fully lives. See, I'm so glad you're saying that because and I've been wondering. those who are alive. Oh my God, see, I was wondering why we have this cultural obsession with zombies, I, I, but I haven't known who to ask. I should have asked you. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, that's what's happening. That is exactly what's happening. And we want to consume it because in a way we're being consumed by this like thing that's not dead and that's not alive. I mean, that is like, to me, that's so profound, which again is like the soul knocking on the door, you yeah. know, saying, do you want to live this kind of zombie life existence or not where you're not dead? You're not. I remember one time, um, this is like kind of an aside, but Ben Greenfield, he's like this fitness guru. And, um, he said sort of like, he was just kind of being funny, but he said, what am I going to put on my tombstone? He was really good at working out, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, because it's like, what kind of life is that? You know, what? And, and that's, that seems <laughs> that to was be, what he was going to put on his tombstone. Yeah, he was really good he at was working really good out. At working out. I mean, yeah. is that meaningful? You know, where yeah. is the depth? Where's the, like, he really stuck to his schedule. Like he just really, and that's this kind of like zombie like existence. And we watch movies that we, and cheer every single time. Like somebody denies the role that they've been given and steps into the unknown and achieves the mastery of like, you know, figuring it out, you know, there's yeah. always like that archetype that you see in movies all the time, which is like, there is no secret path. Like the mm -hmm. path is you just jumping into life. And I mean, we love that stuff. And yet for some reason, when we turn the lens on our own life, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. It's like, this is the problem with Christianity as a religion of beliefs and worship, because we expect Jesus to have done all that stuff for us. He died for us. Yeah. So I don't have to all that kind of stuff. And then I'm just going to worship it over there. I'm going to say, thank, you know, awesome. Jesus did a great job mm -hmm. doing the thing that I'm being called to go through, but I don't have to, because now I have a whole religion that tells me I don't have to do yeah. this. Somebody else did it for me. So I, I mean, I'm, I, I feel compelled and maybe this is a stupid thing to feel compelled by, but I feel compelled to like, sort of like, it's like wrap it up in a in a sentence like first half second half of life i think everything that's been said is there's this is what it looks like in the first half to feel uh like you you, you almost like your job is to somehow get it under control and then the second half is just wakening up to like actually control um doesn't seem to bring any sort of meaning and maybe i need to you know lose control and maybe i need to let go of some roles and there's, you know, but, but kind of getting to the origin of this conversation, um, clearly, at least you and I have been having these conversations now for, I don't know, three, four years. <laughs> clearly there's a, there's a process, yeah. uh, and okay. a wandering. So you want to sum it up? I'll, um, this is not, I'll try. But trans, like, uh, not. I was pretty satisfied with my summary. Well, yours, 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 yours is a great summary. I'll provide a myth. A couple months ago, I started reading the Odyssey again, and I got bogged down because the first four chapters are about Telemachus, and mm -hmm. I was like a little bit bored. I was like, ah, and I don't have a great translation of the Odyssey, so 
I wasn't used to reading. I wasn't used to reading sentences that can last an entire paragraph. You know, right. <laughs> so it's like, oh, this is going to be work. So it kind of fizzled out. And then Michael Mead gave a podcast on Telemachus, mm -hmm. and I think it was just this past week. And something Telemachus is the son of Odysseus, yeah, and then and the first few chapters are like this sixteen-year-old boy, yeah, hanging yeah. out with all this chaos around yeah. him because his dad's been gone for years, and he's supposed to be running, not maybe not running the kingdom, but he's the heir apparent, okay. and he's not in control. Yeah, exactly. Why does the Odyssey start this way? In my opinion, it starts this way because the question, a perennial universal question is, are our young people, or we can even take it personally, are we going to grow up into the kind of people that have virtue, <laughs> morality, destiny, all the great Greek, Greek words of um, a good life, a full life. Are we going to grow up? Because the possibility for us to remain greedy, self-centered dining at the table because because telemachus is is um so the opening scenes are telemachus is in a hall with all the suitors so his father is gone everybody thinks he's dead or possibly dead and he has all these suitors who want to marry his mother and they're just eating up the kingdom literally like mm -hmm. just eating up the, up the resources wine and and killing sheep and they're dining and they're feasting on something that they did not earn and they're greedy and they're self-centered and what's going is Telemachus going to grow up into the kind of person that is going to bring back wisdom, nobility, honor, sacrifice, justice. goodness, justice, social justice, um, full big heartedness. Uh, is he going to grow up in that or not? And I, that to me is so, so profound as an image for where we are, you and I are, and where we are as a culture. Mm -hmm. And because we're living in a house where we are, where our so-called leaders are dining at the table of something that they did not create or make. It's been on the backs of slaves and the land and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and are our young people going to grow up into the kind of, kind of people who are just going to sort of say, hey, this is just the way the world is and we're just going to keep consuming until it's all gone or are we going to grow up into adults and that's the question of first half of life second half of life and what happens to Telemachus is Athena well mentor and Athena meet him on the beach and send him on the second journey mm -hmm. they say to this 16 to 20 year old kid they say basically go find your father which mm -hmm. is like if you just want to think about it mythically, go find the elder within, go find the king within, but you're going to have to leave your world to do it. And that's, of course, the hero's journey in, in, in summary. But I think um, the reason why I like that, and I know it's kind of male oriented, although Athena is a, is a, uh, a female goddess, um, I think it's transgender here. It's, mm -hmm. it, it, it's communicating something that's true of both male and female, that the second journey is constantly tapping and it's going to look like a, a loss and a destruction of the first half to make it the second half, which another easy word for it is growing up. That's my summary. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I guess we got that one done. 